This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm not Sarah Welch Larson, but I am the avatar of Sarah Welch Larson. I'm a giant puppet that is being controlled by her from several miles away. I thought there was, there, there was something about you. I couldn't put my finger on what it was, but now I know it's because that you are not actually you. Like, was it you, the height? Was it the blue skin that, that set you off? I mean, in retrospect, it seems silly that I would not have noticed that before, but here we are. I guess I'm not the most observant person in the world. I mean, that's all right. James Cameron will tell you exactly how to feel and why to feel about that. Uh, listeners, we are going to be discussing James Cameron's latest, Avatar, The Way of Water. After we submit ourselves to James Cameron's emotional machinations, we are also going to be talking about Noah Baumbach's adaptation of Don DeLillo's novel, White Noise, Ambient Dread Galore. <laughs> ambient Dread, Blue Aliens, it feels like a combination for the ages to me, don't you think? Well, well, we'll find a way to make it work. Listeners, that's coming up on episode 362 of Seeing and Believing. Dad, I know you think I'm crazy. But I feel her. I hear her heartbeat. She's so close. So what does her heartbeat sound like? Let you bring your war here. Outcast. That's all they see. I see you. The way of water connects all things. Before your birth. And after your death. This is our home! I need you with me, and I need you to be strong. Yes, we're here on episode 362 of Seeing and Believing, and Sarah, it's winter blockbuster season. Um, you know, summer blockbusters kind of get all the attention, but for me, middle of December is kind of, I always associate it with movies like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. This is the time of year where you take a break from the holiday hectic pace and just sit down for three hours with popcorn and watch an epic adventure. A heating movie as opposed to a summer air conditioning movie is what you're saying. I, I guess if you live 
like I do in a very drafty place, then (laughs) there might be more truth in that than I'm willing to admit for sure. So James Cameron's timing is extremely good then. What with the temperatures plunging and we're getting ready for Christmas to come around and all like it's it seems like he knows what he's doing. Yeah, we'll we'll see in the conversation ahead whether we're going to be roasting some Camerons over an open fire or not. (laughs) Uh, Remains to be seen. Listeners, we are going to be talking about a movie that's been 13 years in the making. This is the long-awaited or at least long-in-production sequel to 2009's Avatar, Avatar The Way of Water. This film is set more than a decade after the events of the first film. The Way of Water picks back up with Jake Sully, played again by Sam Worthington, comfortably settled into the world of Pandora after trading his human life for a Navi one and starting a family with Zoe Saldana's Neytiri. But humans, or as the Navi called them, sky people, haven't been idle during that decade either, and they return to Pandora in force with a ruthless military leader with a grudge leading the way. Jake, Neytiri, and their children are forced to flee their forest home for Pandora's oceans and archipelagos, setting the stage for another human versus Navi confrontation, and for James Cameron to let his imagination and special effects budget run wild in exploring this alien world. So, Sarah, I mentioned this was, you know, 13 years in the making. James Cameron's had this uh, cooking for a long time, Mm -hmm. so I guess the obvious question to start with is, was the wait worth it? That's a great question. The Way of Water is more, not really of the same, but sort of of the same, if you get my meaning. Um, James Cameron famously loves his technology and he loves being extremely exacting. And so I feel like those 13 years were put to good use, kind of finagling the technology that was necessary to make this movie look so good. In terms of spectacle, I think that that weight is worth it. In terms of plot, This kind of feels like a rehash of the first movie in a lot of ways. And so I kind of wish that he had been able to spend a little bit more time thinking about ways to explore the psyches of these characters more so than exploring the underwater vistas that were given when Jake and Neytiri and their family all go to those ocean archipelagos. The ocean archipelagos look amazing. And so, yes, this is a movie that is three hours and 15 minutes long. Yes, that is a very long time to be seated in a movie theater. Um, Honestly, I do think that it's worth it if just for the visual spectacle alone. But I'm curious to know if you're on my same wavelength there. Well, it's it's three hours and 15 minutes. It goes by pretty quick. Like Mm -hmm. the and I I think that the those underwater vistas that you're talking about were by far the high point of the film for me. Hmm. Where this film is strongest, I think, is where Cameron kind of puts the um, the plot on the back burner and just sort of lets his characters explore these spaces and kinds of kind of introduces us to uh, a whole new subculture within the the Navi race so they're not all just forest dwellers we find out there's uh, various peoples who live out in these in these island systems mm-hmm. who uh, have their own cultures um, who regard the forest dwellers as, strange and backwards in a lot of ways and it's fun to watch that unfold in front of us and i probably would have been happy to have just stayed watching these these characters swim around underwater and hitch rides on the alien equivalent of whale sharks and just i i enjoyed that part i very much agree with you that the world and technology and a lot of the 
specific design of Pandora feels 13 years in the making. Mm -hmm. The screenplay feels very much like it was an afterthought with this with this film. Mm -hmm. And to be fair to Cameron, that's kind of always been the case with him. And that's that's kind of something he's settled into where uh, he's very comfortable painting his characters with broad strokes and letting the the audience's comfort with genre and various tropes sort of carry the movie through some of its thinner written bits. Yeah. Um, so that said, I do think there are parts where my patience ran a little bit thin with just <laughs> the sheer shallowness of some, some parts of the story. Um, but on balance, I'd say I like this better than the first one. I think I'm on board with you there too. And it's interesting because you, you mentioned the shallowness of the script. I think that that's kind of intentional. And I think some of the repetition of the story is intentional as well. These two movies actually start with almost the exact same shot. It's a shot of uh, the camera flying through a forest that's kind of misty towards some distant mountains. And then you get some of Jake Sully's uh, voiceover narration telling us well how exactly we got to this point. That kind of structure and that overall um, framing device is something that's consistent between the two movies. So at the very least... To me, it doesn't feel like Cameron's telling a story that feels basic out of laziness. It feels like he's telling that story that's basic specifically so that he can get out of all of the plot and get to the good stuff, which for him is giving us a spectacle, giving us something interesting to look at that we may not necessarily have ever seen before, and then being able to show that off with technology that Frankly, I don't think anybody else really knows how to use quite as effectively as he does. So we saw this film in 3D. There's some high definition frame rates going on in this as well. Normally, I shy away from that kind of technology. But in this case, when it's put to such effective use, I think it does work. I'm of two minds about that. <laughs> so I think the best case scenario for high frame rate filmmaking, even in the hands of a consummate uh, professional and expert like Cameron, uh, the best you can hope for is that it's intermittently successful. There are parts of, of this film where Pandora feels every bit as immersive as Cameron no doubt intends it to be. Like you, you do feel like you are there underwater watching these strange creatures float around. You do feel like you, you are there as uh, the characters are swooping around on their alien pterodactyls. <laughs> you, like that, those parts occasionally work. And then there are times where you feel like you're watching a pre-rendered cutscene in a video game. Mm. And I I don't like reaching for the video game comparison uh, as a general rule of thumb, but it really, it, it kind of feels like... I don't really know what else to compare it to hmm. because in, in video games or at least like, uh, you know, the, the big triple A kinds, that's the sign that you're playing something really top shelf. Um, it's it, the, the experience of playing a game, you really kind of do want that butter smooth frame rate to really help you, uh, read the, the video game for, for lack of a better term in a film though, it kind of feels like, it just there's something in the brain that just feels like this doesn't seem right to watch both computer generated characters and human figures moving in kind of the same way. It's odd. Mm -hmm. And 
it breaks the immersion in some key places. That's really unfortunate because immersion is sort of the the name of the game for this. Like if if Pandora isn't immersive, what are we even doing here? Mm-hmm. And when it kind of breaks that, that that's maybe a bigger problem than uh, some shallow storytelling. It's funny because I think of high frame rate not in the video game cutscene sense, but in the motion smoothing on your TV so that you can watch sports kind of sense. And I'm famously like the kind of person who the moment I can get my hands on a new TV, I'm turning off the motion smoothing. Doesn't matter if it's my own TV, if it belongs to a family member, the motion smoothing is going off. Here though, And I can't believe I'm saying this because I feel like I'm actually kind of defending that high frame rate a little bit. It felt like it was a call to further attention to whatever it was that was going on the the screen. Just the action felt just crisp enough and the editing felt clear and intentional enough that I didn't feel like I was getting lost in all of that extra detail. It just felt more like an invitation to drink all of that detail in and to appreciate it, if that makes sense. Again, I cannot believe I'm saying this. (laughs) This goes against most of what I have said about other things, about motion smoothing and things like that. But in this case, in the hands of this one guy, I think it does work. In the hands of somebody else who doesn't know what they're doing, I don't know if it would have worked nearly as well. I mean, it, it really just makes me feel like the ideal in an ideal perfect world, this would just be an animated film hmm. where something like, you know, whether there's high frame rate, whether the human char- human figures are moving in the same way that the C- seem to be moving the same way that the CGI characters are, uh, that's less of an issue because everything is sort of playing on the same plane of reality, so to speak. Hmm. Um, and I think that's maybe where where my big gripe is is it feels like the parts where where this immersive high frame rate works it feels like uh like a really good animated film hmm. where the James Cameron is unbound by the laws of of reality and <laughs> and flesh and physics and can just go crazy and the parts where it doesn't it feels almost like Cameron wants us – it almost creates like a documentary-like feel. Like hmm. I feel like a you-are-there feeling is not transporting to me in the way that hmm. the most magical cinematic experiences can be. Hmm. It's, a, it's a different kind of – it's a different kind of visual interest and visual language that I think – I think just my personal preference is – um, to not have have that sort of very immediate feel because I almost am able to immerse myself more readily in something that maybe even has a little bit more of a remove. Mm-mm. Okay, yeah. That's funny because I think that feels like a very, you know, Paul Schrader way of approaching movies where he's talking about transcendental style in film where the movie holds you at a remove and then by holding you at a remove, you lean forward and are therefore more invested in it. As Schrader says to... it way better than I ever could. <laughs> <laughs> and that's me paraphrasing Schrader. So um, I'm sure he said it better than I could too. But um, this does kind of feel like it's a mode of film making that is attempting to suck you in so that you don't have to think and mm. schrader's transcendental style is very much designed to make you think and to force you to think and then also to recognize that you're watching a movie and it feels here like cameron is kind of trying to 
um, get rid of that barrier in between you and the movie entirely, completely. seems like it worked for me a little bit more than it worked for you, potentially. I mean, to be fair, it, when it works, it works like gangbusters. By the end of the film, I had forgotten pretty much that the Navi were not people. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I was engaging with them on screen the same way that I would engage with a, a human actor. Yeah. And I do think that that is, is something of a triumph on Cameron's part. Mm-hmm. And again, the parts where he's just almost making a nature documentary about Pandora are just wonderful. You know, mm-hmm. perfect no notes. I loved watching Sully and his family just learn how to dive in these oceans and encounter all sorts of um, strange and wonderful creatures. And the, I think the production design here is top notch and uh, Cameron's ability to film it in a way that it makes it lush and, and, and colorful and, um, and immediate in a, in a way that's really helpful. Like it, mm. the, the way that he uses lots of long takes, like we're, we're swooping in through these environments rather than just viewing them mm. Um, mm-hmm. or having them put together via, via editing and mediated that way, I thought were, was really successful. Um, so, I mean, credit where it's due, a lot of this does work. It's just, it's intermittently successful and that it's unfortunate, I guess, that it can't be 100% successful with this kind of uh, budget and and creativity. That makes sense. And I think part of the reason why this feels more successful to me than with the first movie is the first movie is so front-loaded with exposition and introducing you to this world and the rules of this world and trying to sort of give you this sensory overload of here's a brand new alien world and we're going to tell you all about it while we're also showing it to you. And here I think Cameron trusts the audience that they've at least been somewhat familiar with Avatar. It's probably safe to assume that everybody going to see this has already seen the original movie. So they know the rules of the game, Um, which frees up the movie to do a little bit less exposition and a little bit more exploration, both with those undersea vistas and then also with some of the both inter-clan politics that's going on here. There's not very much of that, but you did mention earlier that um, some of the Navi are seafarers as opposed to forest dwellers. They look a little bit different than the forest dwellers. They're adapted to be able to dive and swim further distances, and their society is just slightly different. There's also an exploration of a family unit here that I thought was kind of interesting as well. So we get to know Jake and Neytiri in the first movie, and we come into this movie finding out that they've started a family together and they have four children. And I thought that although the plot pieces of this movie were on the thin side and the family dynamic felt like it was sketched in those broad strokes that Cameron does so well, I did actually find the story about different family members trying to find their place in a world where they feel a little bit off or misfit. I found those broad brushstrokes to be pretty compelling personally, if just because I think there was enough on the canvas for us to get at what Cameron is trying to suggest here and then to be able to fill in those details myself. But I'm curious to know what you think. Well, So when we were talking about the visuals, you said something that I thought was uh, a really good turn of phrase, how Cameron wants to suck you in so you don't have to think. Hmm. And I think that because he is pretty successful in doing that with this film, uh, I didn't really think about uh, what I was getting uh, in terms of the story 
beyond the point like kind of just locking things together into certain tropes and on that level I, I do think it works like there's a lot of sturdy storytelling and characterization here you know there's the the sibling who uh, feels a little bit like an outcast. There's the older brother who feels like he has to be the one to take care of everybody. Um, there's the uh, the adopted daughter who feels as if she's strange and out of place, just not just in her own family, but just almost in the entire world. Mm-hmm. Like all that stuff, I think is really sturdy. And to the extent that Cameron kind of lets those alone and just sort of. Uh, presents them to us and lets us buy into them. I think the film is successful. I think a problem is maybe when I start to try to think a little bit about what, if anything, he is actually trying to say about family, that's mm-hmm. maybe where it falls down a little bit. There's a line that kind of bookends the film where uh, Jake Sully in, in voiceover is talking about uh, what fatherhood means to him. And he he says, a father protects, that's what gives him meaning. Yeah, And that sounds like, okay, broadly acceptable until you start to think about the way that that thesis kind of interacts with the way that this story is being framed. And I think that's maybe where it falls down because I, I I don't know that the film really makes sense of that statement in a way that I find compelling mm-hmm. or convincing. Um, and it also feels a little bit like, once again, it's more it sidelines Neytiri in in a way that I really find unfortunate um Neytiri in this film is uh she doesn't get a whole lot to do except when she's kind of called on to do the stock but kicking female character archetype Mm -hmm. and it's just it's unfortunate that uh we don't get a vision of parenthood. We get a vision of fatherhood. And even that vision of fatherhood feels very shallow and macho. And the writing about fatherhood, I don't think, sells that idea of Jake's affection for his family as well as uh, the visual storytelling sells the Navi's affection for the world around them. Like there's, mm. there's a lot of good visual storytelling here. Um, I find that it's either it kind of steps on the toes of the of the screenplay and the writing in a way that kind of doesn't bring you up short when you're watching the film. But if you actually try to spend time thinking about it, it really begins to show it seems. Yeah, yeah. James Cameron's very good at the uh, no thoughts only vibes kind of way of storytelling. Right. But once the thoughts get uh, introduced, it's it's not as great. Yeah, it is a very, I think, patriarchal image of family in the like top-down hierarchy the man is the head of the household kind of picture which is actually it kind of ties back to one of my main beefs with the original avatar which is that in the original avatar james cameron is trying to tell a story that is an eco-feminist like anti-colonialist screed basically but he's unable to remove himself from the colonialist (laughs) framework and level of thinking and here it kind of feels as though he's trying to move away from that thought pattern and that thought process, which sort of makes sense given that Jake has been living with the Navi for over a decade at this point. The way that he thinks about the world is naturally going to have changed on some level, but also once a Marine, always a Marine. <laughs> and in this case, I think the way that that comes out is Jake has this very um, 
like you said earlier, um, macho way of approaching the world and this way of um, demanding exact and perfect obedience from his children, even when they may not necessarily understand why. And I'm not saying this to say that obedience from children is necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it is. But I think the way that he approaches the task of parenting, or at least the way that the movie sketches out how he's done that, feels as though it's only thought about the basics of a father protects and a father hands down the law and the children obey and fear him. That doesn't feel like a very healthy family unit to me particularly. I, I feel like this film, it it wants you to kind of assume that Jake loves his children, mm -hmm. but it doesn't, like, I don't think, he talks about protecting his family. He doesn't talk about loving his family. Mm -hmm. um, the, the interactions that we get between him and his children, it doesn't seem particularly like a warm relationship mm -hmm. which isn't necessarily a problem uh if as long as the film kind of recognizes that that is um a shortcoming of his and does something to work with that somehow beyond just treating it as uh his difficulty relating to his children is a plot obstacle the film's good at that whether the film is good at really digging into the character implications of that and taking Jake on a journey where he realizes this about himself. That's, I think, where, where the film falls down. The fact that it, it has that fatherhood mission statement at the beginning and then repeats it at the end suggests to me that Jake is kind of a static character. Mm -hmm. And um, that, is, that is a problem, I guess, when you're, if you're kind of looking for something more than just a very two-dimensional vision of parenthood where uh the parental instinct to protect is more there to give the plot an engine rather than to give us anything to hold on to character wise it certainly does at least give us the not the plot engine but the engine to get us from the original setting to the setting that we need to be in order for this story to be told yeah i don't know i Jake does feel very static to me. I think there's a little bit of dynamism in here, but I think that Cameron's willing to sketch those lines just thin enough that the audience can fill in that level of dynamism and maybe potentially learning a lesson by the end of all of this about how to be a slightly better father. I don't think he does a good enough job of signposting that character development in order for us to understand that that is what is fully happening. I feel like I sort of mapped some of my own like wishes for those characters <laughs> onto the story in that way. And I feel like you do get a little bit of that payoff eventually, but it is very thin and it's very slight. And it is much more interested in the imagery behind a certain state of being as opposed to the process of working out that relationship together. And that's something that's really hard to show. It's difficult to show a good and healthy relationship being worked out on film. And most of the time, that's something that happens through dialogue. And that's just not what Cameron's interested in here. He's interested in vistas, which are kind of by nature static, even though you have animals swimming in and out of the coral reefs here. Like you'd said before, it's kind of a nature documentary, and that's something where you're 
taking the state of nature as just being a given and then you're going to go exploring and see what happens with those individual animals within that landscape. But the landscape's not going to change. Unless, of course, you're doing a documentary about climate change and humanity's relationship to the earth, which Cameron also sort of gets into a little bit here. I don't think that that's much of a secret that he's also very big into ecology and preservation. And that makes sense as well. But there, Cameron is willing to just kind of hit us over the head with it, as opposed to just let us think through what the implications are of the images that he's showing us. I do think the environmental themes are are compelling as far as they go. There's uh because we're spending time kind of in the marine environment of of Pandora, uh we kind of get the the futuristic equivalent of whale hunting mm. uh depicted here and Cameron is very good at really evoking what a desecration it is to um uh destroy a an enormous beautiful animal mm-hmm. simply for you know one part of it. it 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 definitely calls to mind again the uh you know the 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 way that uh settlers slaughtered buffalo in the in the american frontier mm-hmm. as well and uh i think that those scenes where we we kind of get almost like a Moby Dick uh, yes. style exploration of the nuts and bolts of just how they go about hunting these creatures mm-hmm. is, um, I think, maybe Cameron at his best where there's an emphasis on process, there's an emphasis on wonder, and there's a very clear, simple message that this is not a good thing. Yes. Um, I think that's maybe the the, the part where the, the movie, it, where the dialogue and the uh, the travelogue kind of work together and in harmony. Yeah, and I think it's that process, but also being able to demonstrate that it's bad. I think one of the other beefs that I have just with James Cameron and Avatar in general is he seems to be very caught up in the machinery of war and in the machinery of the military and kind of fetishizing it while also saying that, you know, conquest for conquest's sake is not a good thing. And I think that The Way of Water does a good job of drawing that line between this looks really cool and also this is really bad without putting too fine a point on it, I think. Like, he's he's definitely not being subtle. He's not a subtle filmmaker. I don't think he's ever been a subtle filmmaker. If you're asking for subtlety from James Cameron, you're going to the wrong director. <laughs> um, but here, I think... He's able to balance the horror of what is going on in that whale hunt versus the ingenuity of the technology that's in use in making that whale hunt happen. It almost makes the horror even stronger because you have to realize that the humans who are doing this have actually had to think through this process multiple times and then come up with a way to make it work in a way that has absolutely no care for the animal or the environment or anybody else who would care about this whale being hunted. And that for me, I think, is what works really well in The Way of Water is that emphasis on that technology and on that relationship to the natural world. And then also kind of a almost a warning of if you're not careful, like you could go over this edge too. And I don't know, say what you will about the plot or the characters or how thinly all of those are drawn. Um, At the very least, he's doing some very effective visual storytelling with those pieces and then also with the more gentle scenes in the lagoons and in the shallows of the coral reefs. I mean, it's it's hard not to be compelled by 
the way that he portrays the Navi um, being sort of the ideal stewards of of the of the natural world. Um, the the way that that's contrasted with uh, fallen humanity mm-hmm. uh, exploiting nature, I think is is very effective. And I think it's even better here than it was in the first one. Mm-hmm. In the first one, I think the Navi were so freighted with with parallels to uh, the indigenous people of of North America mm-hmm. that it was real. It was it was hard to read it as anything except a very close one-to-one comparison, almost allegory. Mm-hmm. I feel like in this one, there's a lyricism to the way that uh, the Navi are portrayed living side-by-side with the marine life. You, Cameron has the resource of this these underwater scenes where everything is kind of moving slightly in slow motion. People can, uh, characters can float. Um, they can almost dance and, and move in a very sinuous way that uh is only possible in that kind of environment Mm -hmm. and seeing them interact in this wordless underwater dance with these large creatures i think is is wonderful and um is by far better than kind of the much more uh for lack of a better term earthbound way that such interactions were portrayed (laughs) in the first avatar yeah it's interesting um I did appreciate that there was a little bit more nuance afforded to the Navi in this movie because you do get additional societies and you you do get the understanding that um, it's not just all one homogenous people that's living on this planet. Um, I do find it interesting that James Cameron is mapping the Navi onto other pretty real world cultures as well. So um, here the ocean-faring Navi... um, are basically modeled off uh, Maori people from New Zealand um, down to the tattoos. And a few of them even do a bit of a haka when they start to get um, upset and are talking about going to war. And so on on some level, yeah, like it, it does feel good that Cameron is willing to branch out and not try to create like a monolith culture for us to map um, different issues onto. But at the same time, I don't know, like it feels like he could have done a little bit better, but again, I think that that would have required a little bit more nuance. Yeah, I guess the the reason it pops out to me a little bit more with the first Avatar is just because the story there is so close to uh, Dances with Wolves, which was another you know massively budgeted Oscar winning epic um, where an outsider assimilates into a indigenous culture and sort of becomes the exemplar of it in some way Mm -hmm. i think that's why it i'm inclined to be less charitable to it than i am here where it feels much more like um jake having been assimilated is now it's much more less of an outsider interacting with indigenous culture and more two indigenous cultures interacting with each other on more Mm -hmm. or less equal footing Mm -hmm. and that's i think why it feels a little bit like it has a little bit more flesh on its bones than the first film. Yeah, it definitely does go a long way towards saying that the Navi aren't one monoculture for sure. And so for that, I, I do appreciate Avatar 2. I do appreciate that this movie is willing to go out on a limb a little bit more and um, try to expand on the idea that there are other cultures that live on Pandora and not just this one culture that we've spending our that we've been spending our entire time with. 
Um, that I think is something that should be lauded. I kind of wish that there had been a little bit more subtlety and nuance. But again, like I've like I've said before, James Cameron is incapable of nuance. I think. I, I mean, and here and maybe we we come to the 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 big tension at the heart of maybe the entire Avatar project is there's only so much time you can allot to nuanced characterization and uh, kind of a. a political social vision while you're also trying to just have fun exploring this incredible world Mm -hmm. and i mean this movie is three hours long but if you're going to get the highs in the middle section where we're just hanging out with giant alien whales which again (laughs) i think those are by far the strongest parts of the entire film Mm -hmm. then there's there's not going to be a whole lot of time to really uh, push the nuance button too hard on, on the actual storytelling. I, I think I w- almost would have preferred there. And again, in a perfect world, James Cameron would have t- uh, the ability to just make a three hour experimental masterpiece where narrative is almost beside the point. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not in a perfect world, so I'm not necessarily expecting this, but I do think it, I would have liked to see Cameron have a uh, much uh, more intuitive grasp of of the fact that sometimes going halfway on something is worse than just ignoring it altogether. Hmm. And the the ways in which this film kind of skates over uh, themes about uh, fatherhood and and parenthood and family mm-hmm. and uh, colonialism and exploitation and all of those things. I, I think that in some places it's shallow enough to be annoying as opposed to being shallow enough to be good enough, mm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So shallow enough to be annoying, but deep enough for us to want to go back into those waters is what you're saying, potentially? You, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a good way to sum it up. Uh, I mean, one thing that this film does that the first film didn't is pretty explicitly lay the groundwork for another sequel to come. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious to know, like, are you interested? Like, do you look forward to the prospect of an Avatar 3 with uh, an anticipation befitting a decades-old project in the making? I don't know that I want to wait a full decade for it. I don't think I'll be as enthusiastic for whatever happens in three because there just won't be enough time to build up that level of anticipation i think but yeah i mean i'll i'll go visit um it seems like it's a worthwhile world to keep exploring and if james cameron's willing to keep showing us new stuff then yeah i'm along for the ride yeah i well we'll see i almost kind of wish that it had been less sequel oriented just because <laughs> there is there are some plot beats in here that I feel like will play a lot better once we've had a chance to see Avatar 3 and see kind of the payoff or at least the explanation for some of those moves. But I don't know, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. So two qualified sort of positive yeah. reactions to this. I think that's fair enough. That's better than out- outright hating it, I suppose. It's 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 not Shakespeare, but it is James Cameron and that's not that's not nothing. <laughs> 
<laughs> Listeners, that is our review of Avatar The Way of Water. It is out this weekend, so obviously it's going to be a huge release, and we're very interested to hear your thoughts once you have a chance to hit theaters and see it. You can tweet us at Pod or email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com with your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be going to a much more earthbound locale with our review of Noah Baumbach's White Noise here in a minute. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. And before we jump in on this, Sarah, I do have to make a, a slight disclaimer. I have I've quit Twitter. I've... Good for you, honestly. You're free. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate that that response. It does mean, unfortunately, that I personally won't be able to see a lot of the conversation that, that takes place on Twitter now. So I'm kind of reliant on you, Sarah, to sort of keep me plugged in on that. So even if I can't do it uh, over the keyboard, at least I can do it over the air as we talk about what we've been hearing from our listeners over Twitter. That's too much power for one co-host. Um, and I might go mad with it, but we'll see. Listeners, you can also find Kevin on Letterboxd. So, you know, you, you could probably follow him over there if you really want to keep that conversation going as always, well. Always happy to talk to people on Letterboxd, i.e. the best social media platform currently out there. Yeah, you won't hear any arguments from me about that. But since we are bound to Twitter and since I am extremely online and unwilling to leave the platform, at least at this point in time, um, I'm going to be continuing to ask these questions over at the Sea Belief Pod Twitter handle. So this week, I simply wanted to know, what's your favorite sequel? Felt like a very good basic question for a solid basic sequel that we were discussing just now. So Kevin, we heard back from quite a few people actually about what their favorite sequel was. We heard back from quite a few people about what their favorite sequel was. So Ron Sturry um, responded with, has to be either Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back, or The Godfather Part Two. I'm sticking with The Godfather series. Now, that's a pretty solid, solid pick right there. Although, I don't know. Like, I, f- I still feel like the first Godfather is better than the second Godfather. Oh, man. I can't pick between the two of them, which automatically pushes the sequel up in my eyes personally, because usually I'm, I'm an original movie over any sequels that follow. That's fair. We heard from Christy Olson, who said, as a lifelong Star Wars fan, gotta say Empire is probably the all-time best sequel. But since that's also kind of a boring answer, I'm also going to say Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Mission Impossible is one of the only series I can think of that has gotten consistently better over time. Kevin, I know that those are probably fighting words for you. I I mean, not fighting words. I I know that Christy is a huge fan of of the the latter-day Mission Impossible sequels, and I think they're a lot of fun. I still personally prefer the the very first Mission Impossible, and I feel like that might be the unpopular opinion. I don't know that there are a whole lot of people who would go out onto that particular limb with me, but uh, I mean... Rogue Nation, I liked that one quite a bit. It's a good movie. Um, we got a bunch of other responses, uh, but the one that got the most favorites from other fellow listeners was from Kyle Matthews, who said, Mad Max, Fury Road. 
Technically, it's a forkwill, but I've never had a more high-octane thrill ride at the movies. What a film. What a lovely film. That's a really good answer. <laughs> yeah. uh, no notes. I, I That might have been my answer, except that I haven't seen the other Mad Maxes. So. Oh, okay. We should watch some Mad Max at some point. We'll have to add that to that watch list. Okay. List. Looking forward to that that tutelage. Definitely. Um, so, Kevin, I'm curious to know, what's your favorite sequel? Well, I mean, somebody else on Twitter, uh, you, you were talking to me about this before we started recording, mentioned Before Sunset. Yes. And really... That's probably my answer, but because somebody else already brought that up, I I can't really. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I got to do something else now. <laughs> that's a Twitter user review with Brian, uh, who said before sunset, and yeah, that's that's such a great pick. That's a great pick. I mean, it, I, I went through a list of few things. I really like Toy Story too, hmm. um, Spider Man too. I'm a huge fan of as well. Um, maybe uh, reaching back a little bit further, though, uh, Akira Kurosawa's Sanjuro oh, is man. pretty great. <laughs> I need to catch up with that one. So um, I have seen Yojimbo. I have not seen Sanjuro. I mean, Yojimbo's probably better. I do like Yojimbo better. But the question wasn't uh, what's what sequel is better than the original, merely what is your favorite sequel and it's hard to beat that final shot of Sanjuro. I, I maybe we'll make that a watch list pick one of these days. Yeah, I think we're we're getting a lot of good watch list fodder out of this conversation as well. So um mine is one where I considered a lot of the ones that um our listeners responded back with and I think they're all great answers. Um we heard Aliens, we heard Mad Max Fury Road, we heard Before Sunset. Um, so I'm going to kind of go out on a limb and say Blade Runner 2049. Oh, Which I like more than the original, actually. Um, Whoa. I know. It's okay. probably a little bit of a heretical take, but um, I think it's gorgeous. I think it does a little bit better by its female characters than the original one does. Okay. And it's a little bit more consistent in its tone while also being faithful to the original movie so and also it's a fantastic harrison ford performance i genuinely love what he's doing in 2049 that's i you know i i i'm willing to entertain that opinion actually i i need to go back and rewatch 2049 because i i liked it i wasn't sure if i liked it as much as the original though so Hmm. Mm. Gonna have to marinate on that uh, a little bit more. I am a little bit surprised that Aliens wasn't your answer, though. It's up there. But I mean, if we're talking about an Alien sequel, it's hard for me to choose all of them because they are all my children. So I can't just pick one. <laughs> I'm going to say Alien 3 or I'm going to say Alien Covenant or I'm going to say Aliens. And it really depends on like the minute of the day at that point. I mean, it does feel appropriate that all of the Alien films are your children. Yes. <laughs> Thematically appropriate. Uh, listeners, if you want to continue this conversation, obviously there are a lot of good sequels out there. So uh, make sure to hop on over to Twitter or email and let us know your thoughts. Mailbag is still open. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
So, Kevin, we're going to turn our attention from the stars back to something a little bit more earthbound, maybe um, something a little bit less sci-fi-y, although there are some flavors of science fiction, I think. We're going to be discussing White Noise, directed by Noah Baumbach and based on the 1985 novel by Don DeLillo. Jack Gladney, played by Adam Driver, is a professor of Hitler studies at the College on the Hill. His wife, Babette, played by Greta Gerwig, teaches posture to seniors in town. She also forgets things easily and is taking a medication that no one's heard of called Dilar. The story weaves together several threads. The couples work to assimilate their children from previous marriages into a family unit. Jack's attempts to learn German in advance of the conference on Hitler studies that the college will be hosting in the spring. Myriad trips to the supermarket. A low-level but kind of high-level emergency involving an airborne toxic event. And then also always a buzzing feeling that something is horribly wrong. So, Kevin, I know you like the original novel. You've told me before that you're a fan of it. Did Bombach manage to capture that numinous sense of unease in his movie adaptation? Or does this screen version leave you unsatisfied? I I think that um, this film is as good an adaptation of white noise as is probably possible to get. Hmm. Um, DeLillo's novel, there, there's a quality to it that is, I, I don't think is really fully going to be re- replicable in, in film form. Just so much of what makes it work is, is the narration. And short of having uh, Adam Driver just spew a ton of voiceover in this film that wasn't going to happen so having said that there's a lot to like here and if i don't think that the film fully sticks the landing i think there's so much in here that works really well Hmm. um i I liked the turn of phrase uh that you you had there in your introduction about uh, the the buzz of something horrible going on Mm -hmm. um because I think that that's what this film really does capture is just kind of this this ambient dread that that's just hanging over these characters and that uh, is sort of um, they they talk about death a lot and so fear of death is probably part of that but I think what I like about Bombach's take on this material is that it's not just death that is part of that dread there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in the air, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, some literal, some figurative that is contributing to that. And Bombach captures that really effectively, never better than during the middle segment where the airborne toxic event actually happens. I think this would make a fantastic feature with We're All Going to the World's Fair hmm. as a consummate uh, post-COVID movie hmm. because – it feels having anyone who's lived through the COVID pandemic will feel those evacuation scenes from during the airborne toxic event. They'll feel that in their bones. And I think that's very much to Bombach's credit. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So I was not familiar with the novel before I saw the movie, ended up catching up with the novel after having seen the movie. And I think I appreciate both the adaptation and the story like a little bit more having read the novel. I'm really glad that at the very least, um, if nothing else, I was able to seek out like a, a truly great piece of literature as a part of, of watching this film. 
I think it's a pretty solid adaptation. I do think that there are a few things that might potentially be missed. And I don't know if that's because the novel is so fresh in my mind or if it's because um, I, I feel like I was looking for the pieces of the movie in the pages of the book. And I don't think that the differences between the movie and the novel on paper are going to be all that interesting to discuss. I think what's more interesting is getting at that sense of unease that the novel manages to communicate and then just how effective the movie is at communicating its own version of the story. So I don't want to quibble about lines necessarily. Um, But it does feel to me as though there might be something missing. And I think that Baumbach is, is trying to get at that narrative voice that you get that is so strong in the story, in the original story, um, by having all of the different characters say things that are mostly originally narrated by his main character. There's a lot of dialogue here, and it feels very stylized to me. Like when I first saw it, I was thinking, this kind of feels like a play. It it has kind of that same clipped cadence and that same attention to the individual components of the words that are being said and the order in which they're spoken. But he's also kind of layering them over each other, especially in the scenes where the family is just gathering in the kitchen. And they're kind of overlapping and it feels very Altman-esque to me. Altman was what I thought of as well. Okay, good. I'm glad that I'm glad that I wasn't just making that piece up whole cloth. Um and I think that that kind of gets at the sense of dread, but there's there's really nothing quite like reading the individual words on the page. I hate being a person who says, you know, the book was better. But in this case, this movie is trying very hard to grasp at something that the book has. And I think in places it manages it, but it doesn't manage to do it for the entire runtime. Well, so I, I'm glad you brought up the dialogue because... It takes a while to get on the movie's wavelength, partly because that dialogue is so stylized. Uncharitably, you could call it mannered, maybe, but I don't mm. know that there's really a good alternative approach if you're going to really try to get at DeLillo's voice. There's really no other way to do it. Um, where I think it maybe doesn't quite uh, get up to kind of this nouveau Altman kind of style of of dialogue is that it's so hyper literate and verbose that when there's that overlapping cacophony of voices that you get so often in Altman, it's, it's pretty close to overwhelming. It's dense. Yes. It's, it's dense. And the jury's out for me as to whether that's a productive density or not. Um, you could argue that because it's so overwhelming, it's producing exactly the effect Bombach wants, which is just really layer on that dread where you and the, the audience, you, you feel like you're just being dogpiled <laughs> by something and you, you can't put your finger on what it is, but there's just so much coming at you that it maybe mirrors the the feeling that uh, Driver's Gladney feels where he there, there's just... There's something weighing down on him and he he can't get out from under it. And he's not sure if it's even possible to get out from under it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's a, if that's just me kind of making excuses for Bombach or if that's something that Bombach was intentionally going for and that means that the film is succeeding. I think that in the film's high points, though, once you get used to that flood of hyper-literate dialogue... Um, once you become acclimated to it, then the film kind of soars. Mm-hmm. Um, there's 
a really great scene where uh, a colleague of Gladney's played by Don Cheadle invites Gladney into his classroom and, and says, I'm going to be giving a, an Elvis lecture. I need you to come in and give also kind of uh, pepper in your own thoughts about Hitler. And it'll just sort of, it'll give it a nice little bit of, of um, prestige sort of prestige, I think is the exact word he uses. Yeah. And that scene where they're kind of talking over each other, juxtaposing Hitler with Elvis yeah. is, is strange and kind of enthralling. <laughs> and it's, it's cross cut with the, uh, the lead up to the beginning of the airborne toxic event where a flammable semi truck is on a collision course with a train full of chemicals and you, you there's so much dread and thrill in in that sequence that I think that's where Bombach really succeeds at kind of getting at something in Delillo where it's exciting to uh kind of get this voice um uh but it's also kind of <laughs> It's it's there. There's a lot of dread in there as well, and it's also a little bit off-putting. Like I didn't know what to do with that scene as I was watching it at the moment because I wasn't aware that these two characters were going to start basically like cross-cutting in between their own lectures in the same room at the same time. Um, but it's directed with a sense of I, I think verve and almost like a sense of humor that's going on there. It's like, almost like a it's like a church service. It's almost like they're in a, a charismatic mm, church service. They mm-hmm. they get ecstatic. It's it's there's something there. Yeah. Yeah, and they're talking about their respective topics in a way that also overlaps but gives you the space to be able to make those connections. And we'd mentioned this about James Cameron earlier, where he's kind of sketching everything very thinly and forcing you to make those connections without actually having to think about it. And here, I think the effect and the intent are the opposite, where Bombach is trying to make you actively think alongside the students who are attending this lecture. And he's giving you the building blocks that you need in order to be able to make the connections as he makes them as well. So there's this point in this joint lecture where both of them are talking about how crowds would come to see Hitler and Elvis, and they were all engaged in this form of communal worship. And they were also engaged in essentially the denial of death at the same time. And this all happens as you're getting this this train accident that's going to set off the airborne toxic event as well. It kind of feels as though Bombach is sort of laying his cards on the table and saying, this is what the movie is about without outright coming out and saying, this is what the movie is about. But here are the themes that I'm going to be playing with for the remainder of the runtime. And I appreciate that he's able to do that in a way that does justice to DeLillo's dialogue without trying to just do a direct translation to what's going on on the page like he it feels like he's adding something additional here with the images that are intercut of the truck running at the train and then some additional images of news footage of an Elvis concert and then also a speech of Hitler's as well and he's using all of these to just kind of build up to this ecstasy that both of these professors are engaging in in the hopes that their students will also have that same level of enthusiasm for their subjects i think that that's the maybe the the one sequence where it feels like bombach isn't just translating delo's work but has found a way to um, use something that uh, movies can 
uniquely do, which is which is cross cutting, which is um, creating a relationship between two things via the edit. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that in juxtaposing kind of this this ecstatic quasi religious academic lecture with the impending doom of the airborne toxic events taking place. Bombach is is laying his finger on something that's very much in DeLillo's work, but he's making it so clear and in a structural way that wasn't present in the novel that I, I thought it was it was really wonderful. And that can maybe be summed up as the the fact that all of these characters in DeLillo's work and Bombach's adaptation are trying not to think about death. Like there something mm-hmm. foreboding is hanging over them, whether it's their own mortality or whether it's just kind of the sense that the gears of society are about to crush them somehow. Um, all, all those things are hanging over their head. And so they try to distract themselves in various ways by consumerism, uh, in the case of Gladney, by kind of building these intellectual sandcastles that he can sort of use to distance himself from so that when the airborne toxic event actually happens, he's sitting down to dinner just saying like, oh, well, the news would tell us if something was really wrong. Yes. Meanwhile, there are sirens going off everywhere. And and that, I think, is Bombach really doing excellent work at at capturing what Delillo is saying is that there's there's something in uh, American society where we try to put up a barrier between us and actually honestly dealing with real reality rather than kind of a simulacrum of it. Mm-hmm. And that I think is, is really wonderful and is something that y- you wouldn't necessarily expect from a cinematic adaptation of what could arguably be called a very uncinematic book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of want to talk about that dinner table sequence a little bit more too, because you've got um, Adam Driver as, as Gladney sitting at the dinner table, kind of in denial. Babette played by Greta Gerwig is also in denial and all of their children are very much hopped up on what is actually happening because they haven't been able to build up that barrier for themselves yet. And I think that that's a, a really solid translation of that sense of unease that you get in the novel too because all of the adults feel that they're all aware of that low-level buzz that white noise not being sure of what's going to happen but knowing that whatever's coming down the pipeline is not going to be good and none of their children have quite managed to get a sense for what that is like they're not tuned into it just yet but they do know real danger when they see it and when they hear about it and so they're attempting to warn their parents about what's coming. And I think the real tragedy of this story is that we know eventually, just based on the way that all of these characters interact with each other, these kids are going to build up that level of defense for themselves too. And eventually they're going to be inured to that sense of danger that they feel so keenly here. Well, I mean, it's it's telling that the film ends where it does uh, the with, without spoiling anything, obviously the, the final scene takes place in a supermarket. It's a mm-hmm. supermarket that uh, we have visited many times over the course of the film. And when they return to the supermarket, everything is kind of moving in unison. Everybody's kind of returning to normal and uh, kind of going through their their paces mm-hmm. um, as as uh, as normal as you would would expect and. I think that's it, it's it's almost like a happy ending, but it's also Bombach kind of maybe hinting at that uh, what you're talking about with the children, where everything kind of it, it's there. There's a 
inertia that kind of draws everything kind of back into uh, the status quo. Mm -hmm. And the children are part of that as well. They're, they will grow up and they will probably also feel that pull to kind of return to the safety of you know, very well-ordered, well-stocked grocery shelves. The the new butchers that is probably not necessary, but is really, you know, neat. Mm -hmm. And that kind of uh, will do until the next next disaster comes down the pike. Yeah. And death, of course, is waiting for all of these characters, no matter how good they are at pulling brightly colored packages off the shelves. I love that the supermarket could mean so many different things and probably means all of them at the same time as well. There's also a point probably about midway through the movie where Don Cheadle, Murray, uh, Gladney's uh, colleague at the College on the Hill, meets up with him in the supermarket. And he talks about the supermarket almost as though it's a, like a resting point or a stopping place in between. And it automatically made me think of it as kind of that concept of like the bardo, like being in between life and death and just kind of waiting it out a little bit just to see what's going to happen before moving on to the next phase. And that... That final sequence where they re-enter the supermarket the way that they have been this entire movie kind of feels like an acceptance of that state of being. And then also, at the same time, almost a rejection of reality, if that makes any sense at all. Um, I don't know. Like, I just, I appreciate it as a storytelling device, as something that's just kind of always there. And it's there for comfort if you need it. And it's there to be like, you know, a source of, of consumable goods if you need those as well. And most of these characters, I think, need all of those things because that's the only way that they know how to bury their anxieties is to just continue to buy and buy and buy a ton of different brand names. There's a remarkable number of brand name products on the screen in this movie as well. So, so that's interesting because there, there there is a lot of brand names visible. There's also a lot of generic labeling hmm. visible in that in that in that grocery store as well. Where... Only in one aisle, though. Okay. Yeah. I, I hadn't noticed that. I, I know at one point, one character is drinking from a can that just says beer. Yes. <laughs> it's a white label and it's just very plain black lettering. And I don't, I, I would probably have to see it again to really see if, if you know, what exactly that is is commenting on. But I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just it's so colorful, except for this one aisle where everything is generic, and it's all packaged in white. And heck, if I know what the generic stuff actually means, but there is so much just branded junk and detritus scattered across the rest of the movie, not just in the supermarket. In the supermarket, everything is orderly and bright and colorful and looks appealing and you kind of want to go shopping there if just because you know that you're going to find what you're looking for. But in the Gladney's house, it's just kind of a, a riot, almost like a cacophony of different brands all jumping out at you. Um, in the kitchen, I'm pretty sure I saw both Coke cans and Pepsi cans on the exact same table in the faculty lounge in one scene as well. And Everybody just seems to be interacting with all of these things that are branded in a way that feels not forced, but like it, your attention is being drawn to it. Because what else are you going to have your attention drawn to if you're looking for distraction from this level of existential dread? Um, there's also a sequence where Jack has to try to break apart something that's been put together into a trash compactor. And he just kind of scatters all of that trash across the floor of the family garage. And 
all of the trash. I'm pretty sure all of it. If it isn't either a child's drawing, if it isn't a child's drawing, then it's something that's branded. There's a crushed Coke can in there for sure, but there's a bunch of other stuff. I didn't catch all of that detail, but it was something that jumped out at me where I saw so many brands that I started to notice just how many there were, and then I got inured to it, and then I started noticing them again. And that feels like a really good piece of production design to me. Yeah, Jess Gonshore as the as the production designer really doing good work in this picture. Uh, so we've talked about the, you know, we've talked about kind of the intellectual sandcastles that Jack Gladney is building. We've talked about uh, the consumerism uh, that a lot of the supporting characters kind of engage in to do their own part in sort of drowning out that buzz. We haven't talked yet about the Dilar, though. Um, So Babette, uh, we find out she's been taking this medication called Dilar, and it's having the effect of making her forget things. Um, I'm curious to to get your thought on how that fits into the overall picture that that Bombach is weaving, and also where that, that particular subplot ends up. Oh, man. Well, it ends up in places where I just wasn't expecting to see these characters go because this medication is something that she's it's, she's using it in the same way that everybody else is using consumerism or their own pseudo intellectualism or their own just conversations with each other about facts that may or may not actually be true. She's kind of using it in the same way, which is to try to drown out that sense of unease and It seems to be helping her to forget, but it doesn't seem to be solving her problem. And I think where that goes ends up leading to some interesting places where Jack and Babette seem to be in a pretty happy marriage at the beginning of the movie, although they're sort of gliding past each other and they're gliding past their children as well. Like it's a happy coexistence, but I don't know how much of a partnership it actually is. And there's a moment late in the movie where... Jack and Babette start to talk about the Dialar and they actually have a face-to-face conversation about it. I think it might be the first actual face-to-face conversation we see them having that's longer than a couple of seconds. And it's a moment where both of their souls are kind of laid bare and they actually talk out loud about their respective anxieties and about how they feel about each other and about what it is that they're worried about for the future. And it's a moment of honesty and both of them are kind of talking to each other and they're also talking past each other at the same time. There's there's kind of a, there's a tragedy to the moment as well. But there are also flashes of perfect honesty where they both hear and see each other when it's kind of hard for either of them to break through the noise of their everyday lives as well. And there's a moment, there's this line that kind of sticks with me and the the way that Greta Gerwig delivers it, where she talks about how this is a matter um, for the grubby little corners of the human heart. And um, I think that's a line that comes straight from the novel as well. But the way that she delivers it makes me feel as though she is kind of articulating that sense of unease and dread that probably all of us feel on some certain level. And this is the first time that she's been able to be honest about it probably ever even with herself and I don't know like the moment feels a little bit uncomfortable because these two just keep hitting that piece of that sense of friction with each other where they're being honest and they still can't quite match up but it does lay the groundwork for further I don't know if redemption's the right word but I don't know they end up going on 
interesting character tangents after that where they are able to continue to be honest with each other. And I think it lays that groundwork and that foundation for them to continue to grow together instead of apart the way that they have been doing for the rest of the movie. So I don't know, like, I dug it. <laughs> I don't know if I have anything particularly deep to say about it other than I really liked the line. I, I don't know that I have anything particularly deep to say say about either. And that might be partly because I think that's what I meant when I mentioned at the beginning of the segment. That I don't know that the film fully sticks its landing. Hmm. I, I've... I don't know that I really am cottoning to what Bombach wants me to cotton to with the resolution of the Dialar subplot. And I'm not sure if that's simply because that density kind of over eventually succeeded in overwhelming me there at the end, or whether there's something not as fully realized there as there is with the other parts of the film. But something for with it wasn't quite clicking with me. It, it feels... Those that conclusion felt a little bit it felt mannered in a way maybe that the rest of the film didn't quite where the film stopped being stylized and, and started to become uh, a little bit unfortunately uh, mannered and it, it didn't quite work for me as as well which but was an unfortunate note for the film to end on because I think like you I was digging it up until that point mm-hmm. yeah yeah I mean I don't want to say it's a mixed bag. I don't want to say it's a total success either, but I do think that it is a solid movie. And at the very least, it introduced me to a great piece of literature. So that's that's got to count as a success on Bombach's part. Yeah, I mean, I do love me some some Don DeLillo. So I'm glad that it did that for you as well. Mm-hmm. Listeners, uh, White Noise is following a similar uh, release pattern to Glass Onion from a few weeks ago. It is currently in limited theatrical release and we'll see its... Uh, release on the Netflix streaming platform at the end of this month. So there will be a lot of opportunities for you to see it when you do get a chance to see it. Let's know your thoughts because there's so much to dig into and we've probably just scratched the surface on it. So we'd love to get all your thoughts on it as well. Um, but that'll do it for it for this week's episode. Next week, speaking of movies where there's a lot to dig into, <laughs> we're going to be talking about Damien Chazelle's Babylon, which oh, is boy. another three-hour epic about classic Hollywood. We've we've seen it already, and we're kind of chomping at the bit to, to talk about it a little bit more. It's a movie that is a lot, which means that we're going to have a lot to talk about. So I'm personally looking forward to that conversation very much. We're also going to be going on a pretty different tack, I, su- I suspect, as well. Um, with Hirokazu Koreeda's latest, uh, we will also be watching Broker for next week. As a certified Koreeda fanboy, I am looking forward to that one so, so much. I can't wait to to talk about it. Yeah, I, Koreeda plus Song Kang-ho seems like a combination for the ages, so I'm pretty excited about that. All right, well, hopefully, listeners, you're excited for it as well. We are looking forward to that, but that'll do it for this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us this week. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.